Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Nick. I'm Irina. We are here to review The People Under the Stairs, starring Brandon Adams, Everett McGill, Wendy Roby, A.J. Langer, Ving Rhames, and Sean Whalen. Written and directed by Wes Craven, released in 1991 on a $6 million budget, grossed $31 million at the box office. I had gone into the delusion for years that this was like this huge failure, but apparently I'm the only one that thinks that because I remember renting this when i was a kid so probably 1992 or so and it's the only other time i've ever seen it so nick you picked this uh why uh it's one of these movies that i remember seeing as a kid and kind of one that was on uh i wouldn't say constant rotation at my house but my sister was a used to watch this quite a bit as a kid. I mean, not a kid, but maybe like 10, 11, 12, which I don't know, I guess it's still a kid, but um, yeah, she used to watch it quite a bit. And uh, it's just one movie that was, you know, I was kind of going, I was watching, believe it or not, I was on shutter the other day and I was watching the Friday, the 13th documentary and they had Wes Craven on there and just kind of like a Wes Craven. And I was thinking, I'm like, what else did he do? And cause I know he's a, you know, he's a big name in horror. I know he did scream. I know he did obviously nightmare on Elm street, but then I looked out and I'm like, Oh yeah, he did this movie as well. So just kind of, you know, things started kind of clicking and we were talking about a movie and I was like, Hey, why don't we do this one? Irene, what about you? Ever seen this uh, film before? (laughs) Until uh, Nick mentioned it, I think maybe I had heard of it once. Um, So no, never saw it at all. And uh, decided that it was a good time to expose myself to it. Expose is a good word for what happens in a lot of this movie, I think. Uh, Yeah, again, my memories of this were renting it because I think I had seen the trailer, which sells this as this crazy, spooky house. And there's this guy running around. And at the time, I didn't know what it was, but it's basically a leather daddy outfit with a shotgun. And I don't know, there was a skull on the poster. It looked really scary. And it was Wes Craven, which at the time meant to me Nightmare on Elm Street. I didn't really know any of his other stuff. I hadn't seen Shocker and and still haven't, thankfully, because I hear it's terrible. Uh, And I, I don't really associate him with The Hills Have eyes that that's probably the other big one we should mention when we come to west craven uh and this was before scream and stuff like that so i i thought yeah horror movie you know i was in that big phase watched it and again i I thought man i i'm watching a movie that is a different movie entirely here oh yeah totally i remember like the first time seeing this i i got vivid memories of not not really matching up with the trailer like you said it really comes off as kind of like you know people under the stairs are like monsters living in this house is it a horror you know a monster house movie or something like this and it's it's really not i think it's more of a i mean it's it's a satire almost in a lot of ways but it's also very much just like a dark comedy as far as um a lot of the content in this movie goes and it's a lot of a kind of a Wes craven's attempt at political commentary i guess during the time talking about like 
you know, the, the rich, you know, white people or whatever. And then the uh, poor, you know, minorities and, you know, that they're, that they're bringing down and everything. So, I mean, there, there's a quite a lot of substance in this movie and it's, you know, not exactly, I mean, it's not at all what they sold in the trailer, but uh, it's one of these movies where it's, for me, it's like when you watch it, it's a movie you don't forget just because of how, you know, many turns this movie does take. <laughs> I'm going to agree with you on a couple of things here, Nick. It, it, it is a satire for me. Um, I found myself uh, laughing more than having any sort of jump scare moment with this. Um, but yeah, it does touch on a, a, a bunch of uh, societal things here that it, it's an interesting way to approach it. I mean, yeah, let's get it out there now. For years, they've said that this is some sort of parody of the Reagans, or at least what Wes Craven thought of Reagan economics. And, you know, again, the rich white people, landowners, keeping the minorities down and all of this and kind of redistribution of wealth. And I kind of think some of that is more modern sensibilities and critique uh, putting on it. And if you go back and read stuff Craven said about it, he based this on a story he read about – some people that went to or no, some burglars broke into a house and the cops got called because some neighbors saw it happening. But when they showed up, they couldn't find the burglars. But what they did find was a bunch of locked rooms where the children of the house had been locked behind doors and weren't allowed to go outside. But they could they didn't do anything about it because it was like 1979 or something like that. And so he he just thought, oh, what a terrifying idea. And then he created the narrative around it. I, I honestly I mean, if you, you read Wes Craven's stuff. I don't think the man was that political, honestly. He was kind of apolitical in a lot of ways. He liked to do things that were outside of the norm and to kind of shine the light on stuff that he felt like was injustice in general. And whether you're white, black, rich, poor, whatever, the idea that there's always somebody above you keeping you down and that people will go to extreme lengths to try to get around that. And he thought that the situation was horrific. The idea of keeping children imprisoned in a house was a neat twist on the haunted house genre or, or whatever you want to call it or the, I, I don't know but I, I mean that's been out there for a good bit I honestly have never thought about that watching this I kind of think what he wanted to do was to do a horror comedy and that's what I want to ask both of you is one interpretations on it but also where are you kind of on horror comedies because that's not something we've done a lot of here well one thing I do want to quick bring up too is I don't know if you guys ever seen the movie Don't Breathe with uh, Stephen Lang this it's very much kind of like that with like this whole plot being like it's you know you you set up with these people going into this house like you know we'll get into the plot being like you know people they're going to come in doing a robbery and then also like everything kind of twists around on them and then the people that you normally would think were the bad guys are kind of people that you kind of feel sorry for but to kind of get into your old question about like horror comedies I love horror comedies I think horror is so close to comedy sometimes because. I was reading this article about a episode of TV that I really like. I don't know if you guys ever watched the office. Uh, there's an episode called Scott's tots and it's a, it's basically Michael Scott. He promises tuition to a bunch of underprivileged uh, minorities and he was going to pay for the, you know, pay for their college. And he ends up having to go back there when they're ready to graduate saying, yeah, I'm poorer than I was back when, when, you know, 15 years ago or 12 years ago. So I can't pay for your college. And they're talking about how there's like, really like, there's two different types of people. There's people that are going to look at carnage or see something bad and almost have to laugh at it as a way of coping. And then there's a way that there's people that put the, you know, the, put the victims before the, you know, feel sympathy for the victims and that first element, the reason I bring this up is because a lot of times with horror movies, 
people will laugh at it. The more extreme it gets or the most or more cringy it gets, people almost have like an adverse reaction where it's like they laugh at it to make themselves more comfortable. So that's why I think like horror and comedy mix so well, because a lot of times when these movies get so extreme, they almost are becoming, you know, sometimes intentionally, sometimes other times unintentionally funny. So when I look at, you know, movies that are made as directly as horror comedies, they rank up there. Some of my favorite movies, uh, movies like the original, um, uh, Return of the Living Dead. I think um, that's just an awesome horror comedy movie. And even stuff like we did before, Jay, like uh, Trimmers, which has a lot of comedy mixed into there. I just think like out of all the genres, comedy and horror are kind of like peanut butter and uh, chocolate. I'm going to go ahead and agree with you there, Nick. Um, and kind of bring in my experience as an actor and watching actors over time. Um, anybody who's good at doing drama is good at doing comedy. So we kind of take that moment here um, with this in particular, and we have, you know, some of those dramatic moments, but, it, you know, it dips in to, it's such a comic realm that it takes us away from everything that's going on. And, and you know, I, I want us to get to do our plot summary here for a second so that we can kind of really delve into there. I agree with you wholeheartedly, though. Um, I'm somebody who's more going to go for the, the comedic horror than go for something like super slasher because I'm going to sit there with a baseball bat, terrified that somebody's going to come through the TV and get me. But it, I, mean, I mean, that might just be my feminine side coming out. <laughs> that's only if you watch the VHS tape. You know, and hear the phone ring or something. Well, she might actually be a really big fan of Terror Vision because in that movie, the monster did come through the television. But <laughs> All right, I'll give it a try. Poindexter Fool Williams uncovers a ghastly scene when he breaks into the home of his family's greedy landlords. The landlords, the Robinsons, are brother and sister who have imprisoned a group of young boys under the stairs in their large house. Fool meets their daughter, Alice, who's escaped the worst of their parents' cruelty, sort of. And when the Robinsons catch Fool... They throw him to the cannibalistic children to eat, but he's rescued by one named Roach who escaped a while back and is now living in the walls. Though critically wounded, Roach not only helps Fool escape eventually, but gives him a bag of gold coins along with a plea to rescue Alice. Fool learns that Alice is not the Robinson's daughter at all, but just another kidnapped child the evil duo took looking for the perfect boy and perfect girl. There's a lot of chasing around. Police and child protective services sort of get involved. Other hijinks ensue, but eventually Fool escapes with enough money for rent and his mother's surgery, but he returns for Alice and the others because, as he says, he did a bad thing and now he's got to do a good thing. So eventually through chasing around and messing around with Mr. Robeson, he sets up explosives by a vault next to all of the riches. The children turn on Mommy when she tries to kill Alice and she falls to her death. And in a final explosion, Daddy Robeson is killed, the house is destroyed, and the neighbors reap the rewards of the redistributed wealth as the children sneak off into the night and Alice and Fool reunite as friends and then cry to troll. And I don't know, that's kind of a plot summary for this movie. This movie's a little bit of all over the place. I think that's as, about as good a plot summary as we can get for um, how many um, endless staircases we go up <laughs> in the whole plot for this particular movie. As The movie has a lot of twists and turns here, and it kind of really changes a little, kind of its tone. I'm going to think about like halfway through as far as uh, going from, I don't know, it's kind of suspenseful horror to full-on you know wtf horror so yeah i mean it's interesting so we might as well get into it though i, I i'm going to jump in right now i don't think there's anything at all about this outside of the premise of the idea of crazy people that are locking up children in a basement that is remotely horror at all this is complete farce 
and comedy like we've laid out. And as comedy, it's pretty darn funny. I got to say, Everett McGill, every time he shows up in a movie, I just have to smile because he always plays the same sinister asshole. Like in everything I've ever seen him in, whether it was Silver Bullet, Nick, you remember we did that way back in the day and he's the mm-hmm. evil minister werewolf, spoiler alert, or this, or he's the, I don't know, opposite commanding officer in uh, the Clint Eastwood movie, Heartbreak Ridge, or really anything I've ever seen him in. He's always playing this giant jerk of a human being that's got a corn cob sideways up his ass about something. <laughs> and he's just, he's just delightfully awful in in every way and i don't mean awful acting i mean awful as like whatever he is portraying he's portraying the worst of it anywhere but at no point do i think he's horrific in fact i think he's downright hilarious in that damn gimp get up that he's got on oh yeah totally i mean he comes off as kind of the you know he does come off as kind of neighborly in a way but the neighbor you don't want to talk to because he's the guy who's you know kind of like Clint Eastwood, like get off my lawn type guy and he he plays it perfectly he's like he I mean he's like he's a big guy i mean you see him in this movie he's a tall dude and he's just got that you know weird like 50s feel to him you know what i mean like he's the guy you would expect to maybe see like I guess even like, you know, a little bit later, we go into like the sixties, almost like a wonder years type vibe where you'd expect him to be kind of the asshole neighbor next to, uh, you know, the, the family in that show. I, I thought he was just the jerk ward cleaver. He, he literally, is, <laughs> he literally is the guy that's going to stand out there screaming, telling everybody to get off their lawn. But, um, you know, we, 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 <laughs> we have, uh, we have him looking like he, he's put, a pound of pomade in his hair to keep it staying, it's keep it uh, slicked back. And then we have mommy who um, has her penciled on eyebrows that don't match her hair and her forties coiffed look, which absolutely threw me back to some sort of like mommy dearest thing. And, and I didn't look at the cast list before I started watching it. And I was like, is Jessica Lang going to turn around here? Because I'm <laughs> expecting some American American horror story or something. Well, that's a good call out, Irene. I hadn't thought about it, but I bet Ryan Murphy and his crew have watched this and played some of their Jessica Lane characters off of this with the bouffants and all could that you, stuff. Could you imagine how amazing this would have been if she had been in this movie? Oh. <laughs> well, it might have been better than it was uh, to play my hand a little <laughs> early there. I, you know, but the thing is, they are the side characters of all of this. And Ever McGill and Wendy Roby were cast because they were in Twin Peaks together. And so Wes Craven thought that they they played a good couple on that. He thought they played a good weird couple here. And give them credit, they went for it completely. Wendy Roby talks about like this was the most favorite thing she ever did because she just got to be absolutely bonkers the whole time. Oh, her acting was flawless. Like I, I, I can't take away from that. Every emotional, like detail, or like you know, every wave that she went through was perfection, and I believed it. <laughs> and then I remembered the storyline. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, they are a fun thing, but our main character is this kid. Poindexter Fool Williams, Brandon Adams, who I only know from the Mighty Ducks. I know he was in the Sandlot. I've still never seen it. Sue me. But he's been in some other stuff. But I, I remember him from that. And then I know he was no- notorious for playing a young Michael Jackson in the Moonwalker movie experience thing. Nick, I think you've seen that. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought that kid was amazing and was really good. And I knew AJ Langer because I, I remember my so-called life. But honestly, I-, I had to think about what I'd seen her in. Brandon Adams, I knew I'd seen in stuff. 
Yeah, both child actors were great in this. Um, Brandon Adams, I I appreciated because he had um, the right amount of innocence and, you know, just that little bit of edge of nasty thug about him. He, I mean, yeah, I mean, he's, he, he, I've seen him in other stuff too. I don't really recall what, but he kind of reminds me of like, he would have been like the kid on like full house that Michelle would have ran into. Like he would have been like the kid maybe that was like from like East LA that made his way up to San Francisco and became friends and was like living in the backyard or like one of those like weird, like movie, you know, one of the ones that's going to make you teary eyed at the end. So that's just kind of what he came off as. And I, he's probably been in something like that too. So um, but I, don't you know, know, I, got the, I got this whole Gary Coleman different strokes thing off of him. I mean, and, and I got like young, fresh Prince. So, you know, we all got something <laughs> different from him. The thing is that we all got something positive off of it, which I think we'll agree. Well, I'm going to say, I think he's the best part of this movie because he plays all of this so earnest when this is completely bug nuts, this whole story, um, even if it is based on quote, you know, reality or whatever. And thank goodness they didn't put like based on a true story in front of this damn thing somehow. But I, I, I do like his earnest portrayal here where he's a kid that's got big dreams. I mean, his sister is trying to read his tarot cards or some nonsense, you know, going on. His mother's sick and you can't, they're three days past the rent which means they now owe triple the amount of rent which holy cow right what a what a joke and he's like gonna go rescue today and he goes with i love how he tag teams up with a young ving rames who i'd forgotten was in this movie i love ving rames so much oh, he totally <laughs> rules in this yeah can you hear him in, in a young role and, like this and and not like the best like role model and not not the action hero i was like Oh, wait, he did start somewhere. He didn't just show up as this great action hero. No, no, no. I mean, but what's funny is he is like the only steady male influence in Fool's life. And he's the only one that tries to bother to teach him a skill. He's good teaching the business, which is robbery. And I, I don't know. There's a lot of, I, I mean, you could, again, you put on your 2020 glasses with this and you might go, oh gosh, what a terrible thing. But he's just playing a part and he's funny. What's so funny about the Ving Rhames Leroy character is he comes off like such a badass. He's all thick and ripped and stuff, but he's such a wuss. When everything starts going sideways in the house, it's funny. Oh, yeah. The well, minute things start going sideways, he throws the kid under the bus. <laughs> yeah, totally. But then again, if you got a you got a Rottweiler coming at you like that, I don't know who's going to be tough in that type of situation. Well, I, don't, I don't know. I think the best part about that entire scene when you've got that big Rottweiler coming at you, you know, poor Ving Rames, is that you can see that he's got the the armor on. Well, I'm going to say armor, but the padding to keep the dog from going through his clothes. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, not well edited there. Uh, but uh, that's also a hallmark of Wes Craven movies. There's always some you know bad shot that they got once, and I I can't prove it, but I can only guarantee that Ving Rhames is like I'm doing this shot one time, and that's it. Because <laughs> that dog that dog went for it. The dog might actually be the best actor. I'm gonna back up. That might be well, the best actor. Of the whole. Th- let's be fair. The dog was played by Bubba and Schultz and Zeke, so it wasn't just one. So we don't even know which one of them was in that scene but they were great <laughs> well we got to get set up though here for this whole scene so what we got though is like they uh the spencer guy who's the uh token white guy i guess of the group here <laughs> and uh he um they had they had found these like gold coins and apparently they had come from this house so their whole thing is to break into this house spencer goes in he goes missing and then those two go in after him and i'll just say this man it's like you know you're watching this and like they're in this house and it's like 
I don't know the balls on these guys just to be going in this house when these people just like clearly left you like you don't know if they're just running down to get some you know pack of smokes at the gas station or what but it's like man it's like that's uh kind of ballsy for them just to go into that house and then you know they were ransacking it pretty good was they got in there so well, let's hold on let's talk about how difficult it was to get in there because there were wire cages over all the windows they were keeping everybody out so it took a little effort to get in there what amazed me is not so much the getting in there. It's the fact that the house was built to keep things inside of it when it goes on lockdown and it's like electrocuting people at the door and all of this stuff. That's what blew my mind is that it, it is the flip on the house robbery is you, you do all this work to break in only to realize, uh Oh, now you're in the trap. You're not going to get out. You've been caught. It's, I don't know. I, I kind of went to places like Transylvania six, 5,000 and, house and stuff like that other horror comedies i can't see i can't say i've ever seen those but yeah i mean it, it's kind of you know like a nice little twist though on it because you know the first time i can try to picture myself watching this movie for the first time not knowing anything going into here and it's kind of like you really have no idea like what they're in for, even that these other people are, I mean, you, you know that they're bad based upon their introductions and everything, especially with the daughter, but you have no idea like just how crazy it gets. And then, you know, as they're in this house, you start hearing like this weird stuff, like, Oh, you know, he's like, Oh, I guess, you know, rich people got rats too and everything. And it's like, no, it's not. And this is one question I have is like, you know, I want, you know, this movie, even like the first matrix movie where these, there's so much space in between the walls. Is this just the way old homes were built? Or is this just like a conceit that movies have where you're able to move around between the studs? I'm thinking I'm like, from an architectural standpoint, I'm like, that's a lot of wasted space or a lot of missed like square footage you could add to a home. So it's funny. So I sat and I actually was watching this with my husband and um, he was talking to me about how, he he was touring some house and it was actually overseas and maybe he had toured some other house um, in the country, but they had, they have traditionally made houses with servant, you know, pathways so that servants aren't seen stoking the fire or pad, like just in the general hallways of really rich mansions. So it, it's realistic that these pathways would be there for people to move through. Um, if, only to think of the house that, you know, structurally, they can't get into the walls in old houses like those, like we can get into ours. Um, they don't have, they didn't have the technology. So they built them a little bit different. I, I do have to say when I see them walking through all these walls, though, in, in these pathways, all I can think of is Britney Spears and Madonna singing me against the music in the music video, because that's exactly what it looks like. <laughs> Two things I did not think we would be referencing tonight, the matrix and Madonna videos. <laughs> True. To comment on that, though, Nick, um, I, I, my point of reference for that was two things. Uh, the House on Haunted Hill, the original one with uh, Vincent Price, and then like uh, the Adams family and stuff like that, like old Gothic mansions. Like I just sort of took it for granted that, yeah, that's how that was. And I, I think Irina's hit it. It's a lot of the ways to keep the, um, keep the servants from being in the public view. And I mean, again, if you want to run with the metaphor of what this movie is, then that that's the whole point is we're going to keep our dirty secrets in the, uh, in the walls and under the stairs and things like that. But all of our lavishness is going to be on full display. But I got to ask both of you, you look at this house from the outside and yeah, it's, it's 
big and it looks massive, but it's not well kept. It doesn't. It looks like the how she would avoid on Nebolt Street in an It movie or something. Well, you know what this is a reference to, right? And I, I may not be in any like the trivia on IMDb, but to me, I think it's so clear as day. Gray Havens. Have you guys ever heard about that story, Gray Havens? No, do tell. So it's basically it's it's true. It's about and they made a movie on it with HBO starring uh actually Jessica Lang and Drew Barrymore. And it's about these Isn't kind of rich gardens. Yes, I think that's it. I think uh, Gray Havens might have been the house name, but Gray Gardens, yep. But yeah, that's um it's with them and it's a true story about these kind of like former socialites, like think like back in like the, you know, the roaring twenties and everything like that and come from a very rich family, but they lost, end up losing all their money, but they end up still living in this house and living like their lavish lifestyle. But it's even little though they, e, right? little Edie and her daughter. Yeah. Like even though like the house yeah, yeah. is falling apart and every kind of like when you walk in here in the beginning where you see all the casket stuff and everything from the mortuary that the family used to run and just like, they think that they're high class and everything, but in the end it's like, no, you're not, you're actually dirt, dirt poor, but they're holding on to that lifestyle. And it's exactly the same plot here where we later learn that they came from a very, very rich family and were just kind of like the, the future generations. And they're still living this like affluent lifestyle, but they're really not. I mean, even though they're our well-to-do, it's kind of just like they're so like in the past that everything's kind of falling around around them. Well, I mean, we find out at the end, really, by Bill Cobbs, who comes in for a, a great cameo, that it's just one more messed up generation of brother and sister, uh, or, you know, whatever they are in some sort of combination, passing it on from one to the next that used to be a funeral home and a crematory. And that's where the big fire and all that stuff comes from at the end. Uh, but it's, um, it, they've just compounded their wealth and now they have it because they just sit on it. They don't ever do anything with any of it. And they own all this other property. And then of course, again, they have these, these practices like, well, Hey, if you miss your rent for three, you know, days, it's triple amount. And how many people pay that? You know? So I got the sense that they were, they, they were the kind of wealth that just totally and completely uh, was devoid of anything stretching beyond their own walls. That was the point. These people were content to live in their own walls at all times. But now what I wanted to ask you too is what, why do they ever really explain why they keep the children? Cause I threw it in the plot summary that they were looking for the perfect boy and girl, but did they really explain why they keep all these people under the stairs? Uh, they really don't. I mean, I would have to think it's almost kind of like, a reminder or just some type of like trophy case for them. They really don't explain it. But what they explain though, is like when they get these kids and I guess it's mostly the boys that turn out to be bad is that they cut off the bad parts. So like Roach, who we end up meeting in this movie had his tongue cut off. And I imagine the other bad parts are, you can probably use your imagination of what else this guy cut off, but he then puts them underneath the stairs is kind of like, I guess in a way like pets or something like that. Like you could really kind of take it a lot of different ways, I guess. I think for me, I translated it more as a punishment and because throughout the house, we see repeated notes. Children should be seen and not heard. Hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. Once we get into the basement and we take a look at these guys, we've got Roach who has his tongue cut out. We have somebody else who has their eyes gouged out and you see a 
a mask over their face, kind of like displaying that. So I, th I think what we're seeing is them following through on their whole notion of hear no evil, speak, see no evil, speak no evil. And, you know, they, they say do no evil either, but, you know, who are they to judge? Yeah, I think at one point, uh, fools talking to Alice and telling her like, you know, these people are crazy. They're doing all this stuff. It's like, no, you're you're speaking evil. You can't do that around here. And I mean, she's we talked about a little bit in the plot summary, but she's still favored upon a little bit more than the others because she's not locked in the stairwell or whatever. But she's still abused. And I think there's one point where like she does something, she hides a fork or something, and she's sharing it with Roach through the walls and they catch her and daddy's sent to punish her. And mommy's like, just make sure you don't mess up her face. And he does some line about with the belt and it's like, oh, bad girls go to hell. And that's just kind of their whole thing. Like everything burns in hell. You know, that's their whole line. And to hear Everything delivered that line is so much more interesting than what I just did, but I I don't know I I didn't really get what made Alice so much more special. Alice was the perfect child. We see her serving dinner to her parents. She's not saying anything. She's doing exactly what she's told. She's not questioning anything they're doing. So she is she is not admitting that she is seeing anything bad they've done, even though she knows it. She's not saying anything to you know argue against them and she's not doing anything except exactly what she's told so hear no evil see no evil speak no evil she's just being the perfect little kid yeah she's just completely obedient to everything they want to do so i think like you're supposed to take it away that the boys were naturally rebellious and going against what they wanted and she was just one that fell in line very easy and you know just happened to be that she was the girl and you know i think the mom kind of kind of kept to her a little bit as far as just being like oh she's my pretty girl, you know, little, you know, basically living doll for her to, you know, dress up. I mean, she does it in the movie where she, I make her a dress and I comb her hair. So in a way it's kind of like one of those relationships where it's like, she's kind of living, you know, living as her doll for her to play with. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about it like this. You just said it, but that's a real juxtaposition to the fool character who this is the first rebellious thing he's done. He's actually a good kid in a bad situation. And he goes along with this because he doesn't really have much of another choice or doesn't see another choice. And this is the worst thing he's ever done now, which I don't know. I just never thought about it like that. till y'all said that. It's still a pretty bad thing. <laughs> Breaking into a home is uh, like, that's getting up there. Well, I mean, he, he poses as a, they, I think they call it a bear scout. So he's supposed to be a cub scout or a boy scout or something like that, but whatever. Um, but it, he's kind of the, the mark to try to help, Spencer get in who tries to get in under the guise of being the the meter reader is that it yeah he does I think I don't know whether it's an electrician or a plumber or something that comes in there but you know by the time we see him he is like 10 shades of gray yeah he's just the meter guy I mean you get him we get him around here where you know for the water company that come around there and they they read your meter every month the billia so yeah he came over you know with the whole thing of like well you know we're, we're showing a water leak here because they will. I mean, a lot of these places will show that where, like, the, you know, you're using up a lot more water than you should. And then he's trying to, like, well, there should be a meter inside and stuff. And she's like, no, 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 there's not. So, but yeah, he must have went down in there and then probably got a club to the back of the head from uh, Mr. Gimp. So that's what I'm assuming probably what? happened to him. Well, you know, there's no marks on him, though. Like, when Fool sees him, he says he looks like he's been scared to death, like his hair is all white and stuff. He we went Henry Bowers into the, the Barons. Oh, good catch. Yeah, that is that is true. Yeah. 
I don't know. If I walked down into that basement and saw a bunch of lights shining through some uh, two-by-fours, I'd probably be scared to death, too. Yeah, and there's people reaching out to you because they can't communicate really well. Like, Roach kind of can, but the rest of them can't at all. And it's it's a big, I don't know, it's just a big mess when you when you see it all unfolding and stuff. So um, what, the one thing I made a note of when we're just talking about Daddy, uh, in particular, the Everett McGill character, he watches, like, old Gulf War footage, and then he has ridiculously large weapons for the small problems in his house. He has this that huge hand cannon. He's got that big 12-gauge shotgun. And, I mean, he absolutely destroys his house um, routinely. And we see the little weapons closet. Nick, it looks like your gun cave. I mean, it's just everything known to man. <laughs> I think he does everything in excess. Did anybody notice the big uh, rack of ribs he's eating at the beginning of the movie? No, when I we didn't first see, that. see him. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. So we, we get these little tidbits of daddy that, you know, you don't realize are there until we get to the end. But he's got this human sized rack of ribs <laughs> on his table that he's chewing from at the beginning. Okay, I was going to ask y'all that because we see the children later eating Spencer's body. Is are they also cannibals or mommy and daddy also cannibals? Yeah, at, at one point we do see Daddy, um, when we get into the basement and fool, he's gone fool and kind of tied him up, um, we've got Bing Rames hanging upside down, you know, field dressing style, and he's cutting something out of him, but he's also got blood dripping from his mouth like he's already eaten from him. So I would say that um, the meat grinder on the counter, the minute you walk into the kitchen, the yeah. rack of ribs that is sitting on his plate as he's sitting there in front of the fire while poor Alice is standing there waiting for mommy to make her dress on one of those old Singer sewing machines that you got to pump the pedal for. I mean, I think we know just from those little bits, if we go back that we know exactly what they're eating. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, good call right here too. Cause you know, I probably seen this movie more than, you know, both of you guys, obviously, but um, I did not catch the cannibal um, aspect here, but you're right. I mean, yeah, he was field dressing him and it looked like he was eating him as well. So, and then, yeah, there is the meat grinder on there and stuff. I mean, is is it? I mean, talk about being the Reagans. It might be Carol Baskins for all we know. So. <laughs> we keep me around for these obscure little details that I see in movies. It's the only reason. I don't know the. I, and so now you took that was Leroy that was being field dressed. I totally missed that. I thought that was Spencer, but it makes sense though. You're you're right. I thought that was him, but Ving Rhames would have more meat on him than Spencer, so I guess he would go. For, did I just well, say that? I just said that. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, really, That's like what she said. Yeah. So I mean, there's there's something going on there. I. I don't know. I never, I didn't remember that again, but I haven't seen this since 1992. I mean, I think I'd seen pieces of it here and there, but I never paid attention to this movie again. So I don't know, but they, they do make a joke though. Fool does about the dog and like how much his breast stinks. It's like, what are they feeding you? And I'm like, Oh, I think then we know what they're feeding him. They're feeding him leftover peoples. Oh yeah. Cause later we'd see mommy hand off. Um, I think it's Spencer's hand at that point to Prince, the dog. God love that name for the dog. It kills me. But um, we, going back to Van Rames, we see him get dropped into, I don't know whether it's a sewer or what, but can we talk about um, Scott Whalen in this movie? Because him as Roach is probably one of my favorite things in the entire world. Maybe not the entire world, but I love him as an actor. And he's one of those guys um, that you see in a movie and you go, shit, what was his name? I've seen him in everything. But who the hell is he? I thought he was great in this. 
Go ahead. He's one of those background character actors that you see all the time. Uh, I, I got a really like for me, like there's a lot of like, really bad comedies that I like. And like one of them is a movie called Employee of the Month, Month starring Dan Cook. And he's in I love that movie. Yeah. And he's just like he's the assistant to like it's like they t- it takes place like in a, in a fictional Sam's Club. And he's like the six the assistant manager. I just remember too, like there's like one scene with him where the guy's like, "Did you fart?" He's like, "Yep," just like in the middle of the movie. And it's just like he's just <laughs> one of those characters too. I mean, one of those actors that just he's he's fun to watch, and you know. But yeah, like you said, it's like you don't know his name, but you, you know his look and you know the movies that he's been in. Yeah, he looks like something that survived like the. Uh, Revenge of the Nerds kind of movies and Porky's from the 80s and just never aged for like 25 years. Like he just kept playing the same role throughout the 90s until he got to be a little bit older. Funny thing, though, I did look it up. He was almost 30 when, when they shot this movie. So, uh, but he looks so young that he plays it off well. He is kind of a neat character though. Cause you, what you realize is that mommy and daddy would have you believe these people are evil and bad and they need to be punished in some way. And what you realize is that they're victims like completely. And he's there to be the voice of all the other people under the stairs because he's the one that that got out so what you see are like the evolutions of the robinson's worst nightmares coming to fruition in front of them the people under the stairs are starting to act up again roach is the one that that almost got away but is still trapped alice could get away and fool is the kid that they want but is going to get away and so you see like the evolution of their nightmares happening in front of you here Oh, absolutely. I do appreciate the fact that Roach is the only one who's got a haircut, too. I don't know how that happened. Yeah, I don't know. Like, He's well manicured. I mean, he has some long fingernails, but other than that, he looks pretty pretty strong for the rest of the movie. I don't know how he's getting by, but uh, I guess if you can live in the walls, you can do everything. Mommy does even talk about, like, who knows where he does his business and all of those things. She, she just talks like she's so flabbergasted about all of it. And I'm like, lady, you're crazy. You're, like, cutting people's hands off and feeding them to the Rottweiler, for goodness sakes. But I guess that's supposed to be the satire, right? Well, if we take a look at this house, we know there's nothing that smells good in there at all. Not a single thing that smells good in there because it's broken down and it hasn't been taken care of at all. No, it, it couldn't be, right? Like everything in there has got to stink to high heaven. And maybe that's supposed to be the, I don't know, the symbolism is that it all looks real pretty on the outside, but on the inside, it's just a big rotten mess. Yeah, I can just imagine the smell of that house. It's got to be like that real musty, damp smell when you go in there. Especially like, I think even when they showed the, um, oh, just like in the entranceway with all the mortuary stuff, you know, probably like the dead flower smell. Just like that smell of just, uh, you know, dust. I don't know. Like when you ever clean your house and stuff and you're, you're dusting up above the fan and you get that whiff of all that, you know, dust that comes down. Just like that awful, awfulness there. But as we get into the movie too, and we brought this up before when he's going around and he's hunting for roach and he's hunting for fool and dude is just blasting the drywall with that shotgun. And I just kept on thinking, I'm like, I've done drywall work before. It is not fun. Um, I'm sure, you know, Jay, you remember the whole kitchen story that I had here where I decided to <laughs> demolish half my kitchen on a whim because I was watching HGTV and then realized it's not as easy as they make it look. And I'm just thinking of like all the drywall work that this guy's got to do. And plus that house isn't like, you know, houses of today, which are just, you know, basically three eighths dry, uh, drywall everywhere. I mean, that's a lot of woodwork in that house, a lot of like, you know, deep mahogany and everything and craftsman style, you know, you know, everything there. So 
I just watched this guy go around and it's like almost kind of making me sick where I'm like, dude, you're like ruining the hell out of your house here. I'd but, love to think that it was just drywall that he was ruining too, but that that's not, that's plaster and all of that 1800s style house building. So, it, you know, it is just a mess. I do have to say, I think you gave them a little too much credit by saying that the house might've smelled musky because I have cleaned out Porter's houses and I can tell you <laughs> it does not smell like dust and must. I can't imagine what what this house would smell like. And, and I think you're being way too generous on that. I think we get blasted with dead flower smell and then we get blasted with rotting flesh. And God knows what feces is in the walls from Roach living there. Yeah, and the gunpowder smell, too. I, I, all I'm going to say, y'all, is see no evil, speak no evil, hear no evil, and smell no evil. I don't want to know. Like, this well, the, 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 the one thing that kind of gets me, though, with the movie, though, is like, you know, like we're talking about him blasting away and everything. And uh, later, when we actually have the police come into the house and everything, I'm like, did he like patch that stuff up really quick? Because, you know, cops coming in there and seeing gunshot stuff everywhere would be like, Okay, you know what? We're going to have to detain you guys here because something went on in this house. I, I wrote the same thing down and ended up erasing it off the notes page because I realized they kept the cop in two rooms and it was two rooms where he didn't shoot anything. And so they just kind of, because they were such large rooms that the cop would be like, eh, I'm not going to spend all this time with this. These are just rich old weird people. I'm going to go away. You know, and that, that was how it was. I, they did contain it though. Cause they would never took him to any of the places where he actually did all of the shooting. What would have been funny is, and what is funny is when he takes his cap off, cause he's been hit in the head with the toilet thing or whatever. <laughs> and he has to like clean the blood off while the cops turned around and he puts it back down to sort of, you know, hide the wound. I did think that was some good physical comedy. It was oh, a yeah. it was a great moment of costuming and comedy. Um, I, I do also appreciate um, mommy walking around with cookies and coffee and turning around and saying something about if I have to see another cookie. She goes from this. She's she's got this absolute bipolar personality of I'm going to be super sweet and now I'm going to be a mommy dearest. <laughs> no wire hangers. Yep. And this whole thing, too, is like, that's why I'm having just a blast of this movie is because it's just so over the top with all of this stuff. I mean, even like, you know, even when we go back to like when Fool finally gets out, you know, he jumps down into the moat and everything and then gets out. I mean, it's kind of a koi pond. I have a koi pond in my backyard. Ain't that deep, but that's a one deep koi pond. But he, he gets out of there and I just I laugh, too, and she, he starts shooting shooting uh at him in the backyard she's like no guns on the outside and you know me and jay we've we've been to gun ranges and stuff like this and it's like uh the neighborhood would know that he's shooting that gun off because you know shotguns are very very loud they'd all be deaf first of all but it's moving gun logic and everything forget like everybody that. else forget everybody else he'd be deaf he'd be yeah. deaf we've all been to a gun range we know that th- that there's no way that that's going to be quiet but even like when Fool goes back to his like neighborhood and everything, I mean, um, a movie that I just watched recently was Candyman. And um, I grew up in Milwaukee, which is not that far away from Chicago. And I knew about um, the area down there that Candyman was uh, based upon and everything. Cabrini and Green. Just, yeah. Yep. Cabrini Green. Yep. And just the way that that looked. And it's like, oh, my God, it's like the, he lives like in Cabrini Green there because of just like. I mean, ever seen such a dilapidated like apartment complex of what he's living in? I mean, even the, I mean, everything. Yeah. I mean, that looked like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, yes, I have. Do you want to know what my movie reference for that was, Nick? Critters Four, the shortest film strip review of all time, uh, because that's exactly where those people were living too. It's just the slums of L.A. is what it's supposed to be. What I love though is when Fool gets back to his home or he gets outside, he's like, ah, oh, the smell of smog. You know, <laughs> he gets out of the burbs and he can't take it, and he's got to go back to the inner city. 
city and you know with his people and all this stuff uh, i do think it's neat though that he escapes and that's not the end of the movie like normally that would be the end and it, no he goes and once he's accomplished goal number one i've got money to handle my problems now i'm gonna go back and do the right thing and i don't know that like if we're trying to say this movie is supposed to be some socio-political statement that that's the right one to say that's why i don't think wes craven was saying that at all because that would be a terrible impulse you have your your protagonist the people we're supposed to root for here they finally get their answers and and then they decide to do the quote right thing i thought that was that that didn't land well if this is going to be some sort of larger statement and not just a dumb horror movie well i think the whole time though too i mean he was kind of you know he was helping her out. It wasn't like he just took the money and got out of there with the daughter being there and everything like that. You could tell he had, he had some compassion for her as well as like Roach. I think it was just mostly he had to get out of there. And then he went back and gave him the the money because it wasn't so much about like, Oh, we're rich. And now we can, you know, get out of here and go buy a big house and a bunch of fancy cars. The money more or less was for his mom because they set up in the beginning of the movie that his mom has cancer and it's a very curable cancer from what they're saying, but they just don't have the money for the procedure. And so that was the reason why getting this money was so important to him. It wasn't for like materialistic stuff. It was essentially to save his mom. And that's what you kind of find out about fool is like, that's kind of his whole, like his whole personality is that he's trying to look out for people. And after he gets his mom settled and being like, okay, well, I'm coming, I'm going here. We got this money. He's going back into the lines. Then he didn't have to go do that. And he, he, they first try with the cops, the cops don't work. And then he tries to take it underneath himself then. So, I mean, he's got a lot of integrity and it's more to him than just money. It's more or less about saving people. No, I agree with you completely. That's that's the point I'm trying to make is that's why I don't think the you know, m- metaphor that this movie is supposed to be hold up i do think it's just the simple story of the guy took advantage of the situation he went and did the right thing and he even says that whole speech about how i now got to go do the right thing or whatever i got to go do something good yeah if we can if, if we're gonna go ahead and find some sort of morality to this whole plot besides hey let's have people shoved under stairs st- starving and eating other people it's <laughs> It's that it doesn't matter where you come from. You can still be a good person with morals. And that's kind of what, you know, if we're going to find some happy little heartfelt, you know, heartwarming moment, it's that, you know, he, he, he knows what's right. Um, You know, my other heartfelt moment was when um, mommy finally got her throat slit and went tumbling down the stairs. Can we talk about the rolling down the stairs in this movie? Because we have Bing Rams who get shot and rolls down two flights of stairs, by the way, it was beautiful. Then daddy in his, you know, BDSM outfit gets rolling down the stairs. And then mommy goes down the stairs. It's literally, I couldn't have seen more people roll down the stairs in this movie if I had to. Irina, they should have renamed this movie People Rolling Down the Stairs. Like they really 100%. I'm not going to deny it. I'm going to say, go with it. Go with it. Why don't you put in for them to rename it? They should have done that. Uh, the one thing is when Alice does take out Mommy, because she's quivering in fear as Mommy's coming after with like the longest, you know, useless knife ever. And the other children bum rush Mom, and, and that gets Alice to get the knife. And then we do the whole, we'll push her onto the knife. So you don't have to actively do anything bad, but you can help bring about the demise of your torment 
tormentor. I, I really like that for the Alice character. I wanted her to to borrow your mommy dearest thing, I Rita. I want her to do a Diana Scarwin and go, I'm not one of your fans and stab her. You know, <laughs> actually actively do that. Well, I think she kind of, you know, went along with the the whole the whole mommy thing when she finally told her that she would go to hell. You know, she she followed yeah. through, she learned her lines. Go burn in hell. That was her line, right? She she did get. I guess that is her. I'm not one of your fans. Line is that she she. See, it happened. Everything's so, there. So it's that. Well, you know what though? I missed it though, and we'll talk about why in a little bit. But <laughs> fool goes up against daddy at the end here, and I mean, daddy's got him dead to rights two or three times. But I love that fool's little idea of finding all that dynamite, hooking it up in front of all that gold and money, and he, he's got it ready to hotwire and go. And my only question is. How did a 13-year-old kid learn how to do that? Well, you got to think of the neighborhood he grew up in. I mean, that's kind of what we were set up with at the beginning of the movie with, you know, his mom's out turning tricks. We hear that. Then we've got Ving Rhames, who I can only imagine is probably her pimp, Um, (laughs) among other things. uh, That's the, the stigma that's placed over that family. Well, and two, I mean, really, I mean, how hard is it? I mean, you got to just have an electrical pathway and then you got another one connected to the fuse and all you got to do is close it. So, I mean, I don't know. I couldn't do, I couldn't do that. And I took shop and graduated high school and went to college. So, nope. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's a conceit we're supposed to give it. And I, I guess you're right. I just wondered, like, well, he really figured that out real quick. I mean, like James Bond style, but or MacGyver even, but whatever, it, it worked. And therefore we get our big ending where he blows the daddy up and blows the loot at the same time. And what did y'all make of the fact that all the money then goes raining down into the neighborhood? Like, I don't know, Looney Tunes style where everybody go pick it up. It wasn't just Looney Tunes style. We had the accompaniment of like party music (laughs) as it happened. Yes, yes, it was very much like I needed celebration from Cool and the Gang, and we would have or like dancing in the street or something. It's, it's it's like the climax in Batman, you know what I mean, where the Joker's throwing money out at everybody and everything. So you got the music going on, but I mean, it's supposed to be just you know that the bad guys are defeated, and they they set up the whole thing that these people have been robbing from these people for you know generations and everything, and it's their payback. You know what I mean? The money's shooting out of their house as the house is destroyed; they're dead, and all the people there. Are, essentially collecting all the money that was, you know, from them and their, their, their parents and their parents, parents and everything. So it's kind of one of those, I guess you would say feel good movie endings and stuff like that. But I love though, how (laughs) all all, all, all the, all, all the children, you know, the people underneath the stairs are just like, they're walking out of the house and it's like, yep, they're just going to be walking down the street and everything like this. They're free. I just, I, I find it hilarious. Just what happens with them. Can somebody explain to me why they look like zombies instead of withered away human beings? Because they do have this like zombie gorish makeup thing going on, which made zero sense to me. I'd expect them to be emaciated, maybe some bloated bellies and here and there. But, you know, these are all adult men that are coming out of the basement looking like a bunch of zombies. I guess I I missed out on why that happened. I thought I was watching the end of the thriller video where everybody was dancing, you know, or something like that. (laughs) That's, that's what it looked like to me. I guess it's supposed to be because they've been trapped inside with no sunlight for goodness knows how many years or something like that. That's what they're supposed to say, but I'm with you. Like they needed to be a little skinnier and frailer and not able to move. Well, but I mean, they kept them fed. They just fed them other people. So, they weren't which is fine 
which is fine. They had plenty of protein. They didn't have any fiber and they had no exercise aside from running back and forth in, in their stall. I mean, they were running away from the shotgun blast. You know, they all survived. Well, I, would, that, so. I would imagine, though, it has a lot to do with they're not bathing or anything like this. I mean, they're basically in their own filth for what would be, what, 15 years, 16 years? Where they, yeah, yeah, not bathed and not having sunlight. So I imagine they're they're not going to look very good. I mean, yeah, I've, I've seen Kim Kardashian without her makeup, and it looks pretty similar. So I'm not going <laughs> to, you know, say this is unrealistic. So. <laughs> Well, I think we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So what are yours for the people under the stairs? Nick? Um, it's, it's a weird movie for me because I enjoy this movie. It's, it's something where I'm watching it, and I have a good time watching it. Is it a scary movie? No. Is it a funny movie? I really think so. I think it's a, a funny-ass movie. I think there's a lot of really kind of like clever gags. I mean, even like little stuff like you bring up about him, like lifting up his hat and wiping the blood away when the cop's not looking. I mean, I think it's a very competently made movie. I think it's, yeah, there is a script all over the place, but at the same time, it knows what kind of movie it is. It's not sitting there trying to be something. It's not, it knows it's off the wall, crazy and it's having fun with it. And you know, when we go with mommy and daddy and stuff like that, I mean, they know what type of movie they're into and these actors are having a blast with it. And anytime you can sit there and watch a movie and have a good time and see actors that are also having a good time, I don't know how you can hate on it. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a fun t- movie, but is it a good movie? I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, it's kind of like in between a medium and a large popcorn. It's not, it doesn't have the qualities of a large popcorn, but it's not as bad as like some of these other medium popcorns that we've done. So it's kind of like a, I guess I could say like an overfilled medium tub of popcorn. That's got some really good butter on it. I mean, it's like I said, it's, it's kind of in that in between. So if we could, you know, go like one star, two star, three star, four star, it's, it's a solid two and a half star movie for me. Irina. Uh, so being as um, it, it's not my normal movie that I watch. Uh, I'll do anything for film strip once. <laughs> It, it, I enjoyed it. Um, I didn't find myself tuning this one out. It's not my favorite movie by any stretch, but I laughed really hard. Um, there was a lot of play in it that was fun with the actors. Um, I, I'm stingy with my popcorn. I'm going to go small, but I laughed so hard. We'll like give it a little extra butter. <laughs> um there were some acting moments that I appreciated. I really loved um, the actress that played mommy. I felt she, she had all of the extremes that I wanted in this character. Um, and for me, it was, it, it, it was fun. Will I watch it again? Probably, but only after, you know, a couple of glasses of wine and, and a shot of tequila. <laughs> so I'm, I'm listening to you guys Tell me about this movie. And, and I've got to say, talking with you two about it has been far more an entertaining experience than watching it. I, I have to say <laughs> that. Um, and it usually is with these kind of things. And I don't come into reviews to just totally like shite on something necessarily. But I knew coming into this one that I did not have good memories of this. And watching it again, I realized why. I I don't think this movie, and this is kind of a criticism of Wes Craven too, 
I don't think it knew or it would allow itself to be what it totally needed to be. Like there was too much of it trying to be self-serious and trying to be scary when what it should have done was lean totally into that campy, goofy, fun range. Like terror vision is a movie that knows what it is and just lets it ride and has fun. Or the original critters is a movie that totally knows what it is. And it's a blast to watch. This movie is a, is a, Bore. I'm sorry, y'all. I was <laughs> bored during so much of this. I love you guys, but I cannot join you in the praise <laughs> of this because this this is one of the most boring things I've ever seen. And I do not get why people hold this up as like this is Wes Craven's third best film. I'm like bullshit. Like there's so many other <laughs> candidates for that. Serpent of the Rainbow is a way more interesting. It's weird, but way more interesting idea. Or even something like Red Eye, which is really unknown from his stuff. Like, you know, late Craven stuff. It's so much more entertaining than this. this this movie only exists still today i think because people have placed all this heavy parody metaphor you know anti-reaganism stuff on it and they they want to have some social commentary about it but like i've talked about i don't think this movie is even true to that and i don't think that's what craven was wanting to say anyway he took a, a weird news story and turned it into a, a movie which has been done a billion times good on him i really wish it would have just leaned into the goofy the bore or would have gone the other way and gone completely horrific but i don't know that you can make this more horrific i mean it's been done so many times I mean, i'm thinking like flowers in the attic it could have been that which is even weirder and ancestral and all that stuff this one just totally did not work on any level for me look the, the, some of the actors are really good and i give them credit for trying to do the best they can with what they're given i just don't think there's enough there so to me this is small popcorn and like not in the good way like this is bad this is not the worst thing we've ever reviewed but i gotta tell you i'm like i had i had more fun reviewing and watching the kindred than i did watching this and i it was fun reviewing it it was not fun watching it i had more fun watching the kindred than this just to put it on a level that film strip fans if you've heard that review you know about <laughs> well I, I do have to uh let you know that one of our other co-hosts happens to like this movie a lot so nick and i are not alone in enjoying these moments <laughs> maybe we all you know just we drank the water a little bit too much and we got lost in the moment watching this one <laughs> and this and, and this might be a movie too jay that is better to be washed in a group I agree than, there, it is, yeah. than it is by With yourself. Alcohol. You know what I mean? It's kind of like something like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. You watch that by yourself, it doesn't have the same effect as if you have a group of people there that know the movie and know the beats and everything. So I think it's a movie where having more people there and having people be able to laugh at parts that maybe you kind of find somewhat funny to be able to bring out the humor a little bit more might help it. Yeah, that's a good point. I've never watched this with other people except like my family when I watched it in 1992 or whatever. And I don't remember what any of them thought of it. And I, I watched it alone for this. And so, I, yeah, you're probably right. In a group of people that are kind of in the mood, this would go. But I, I'm just putting down my flag in the if if people want to say this is the third best Wes Craven movie, you got to Like you need to rethink that position. Like I, I implore you to re-examine the oeuvre. It's not strong, but there are better third entries that if you want to put it nightmare and scream as his big two then like the, the i mean come on they, they're better stuff than people under the tears but like i said it was a lot more fun talking about it with you guys than it was actually watching it as that gins to be here on film strip as it goes <laughs> folks thanks for listening to this latest episode you can find our archives in the podcast and 
You can find the archives of our podcast on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. Please leave us a positive review wherever you find the show. Follow the show's social media at filmstrippod on Twitter and Instagram and search for Filmstrip Podcast on Facebook to connect with us there. We appreciate the support. So for Irina and Nick, I'm Jay. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.